I don't know the circumstances of how this meeting came about. He may have been invited, he may have been forced, or he may have been thinking he was going to dinner with friends, but he found himself in a scene straight out of The Godfather. Two men he had never seen before asked him to join them for a cup of coffee. The meeting was to take place at Ayers Diner on Hillsborough Avenue. When my dad entered the well-known restaurant, he was escorted back to a dimly lit banquet room, wondering why the main diner tables weren't sufficient. He heard the door slam behind him. There, sitting at a foretop, were two men waiting to meet him. He noticed several other men scattered throughout the room, all standing with their eyes focused intently on him, each man standing at attention as if waiting for some sort of signal. Well, thanks a lot, Anthony. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, you just heard a little short reading from Anthony's book about the Traficant Mafia and family and his father growing up in Tampa, Florida. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you, Gary, for having me. Well, this is kind of a long, torturous trip we took to get here to this date in time. Folks, I hate to admit it, but I dropped the ball here. And Anthony got hold of me a couple of years ago, just before COVID hit. And somehow I was looking back at my old podcast, my podcast group on Facebook and the messages. And I see this and I thought, well, what the heck? I never did talk to him. Let's go find him because I'm thinking about doing something with Scott Dietschy. Of course, Scott is going to talk about the Purple Gang up in Harlem. But Scott Dietschy, if you guys don't know, he is kind of the main premier historian of the Southern Florida crime families. And he has the Eber City mob tour, which I took. If you look on my YouTube channel, you'll find my kind of going on that tour so you can get a taste for what that's like. Right now it's February and it's colder than heck. You may be going down to Tampa from up in the northern part of the United States. Now, Anthony, do you live down in Tampa still? Yes. I never left. I've been here since 1962 and I'm still here. And my whole family, well, we're pretty much, we've grown up here. Yes. So you got a copy of your book there. Hold that up so the folks can see that. Familia. Yes. La Mia Familia, Never Let Them Steal Your Name. All right. La Mia Familia, Never Let Them Steal Your Name. So this is about your family and their interactions with the Tampa crime family or the mafia in South Florida. Tell us a little bit about how you grew up. I thought that I grew up normal. I thought my life was normal. I'm 62 years old now. And as I have gotten older, and as I have had friends in high school and college and professional world, Everyone tells their stories of growing up. Everyone talks about the things that they do growing up. And I'm a great listener. And I sat back for many, many years. And I thought to myself, wow, I have some of the best friends in the world. I have people I've known since I was 13 years old that are still friends of mine today. And what I began to realize is that none of their stories of growing up had anything to do with my story of growing up. There were virtually no similarities at all. And one day, about four years ago, I sat down with my two sisters and I said, you know, 
did we grow up like this? Did these things really happen? Was this really our world? Because you grow up sometimes and you put things out of your head and sometimes there's coping of things and tragedy and circumstances in your life. And I sat down with my two younger sisters and I said, did these things really happen? Did this really happen with dad? Did this really happen with mom? Did we really go through this? I knew the answer was yes. (laughs) I just needed confirmation from my sisters on that day about four years ago that yes, these things really happened. And in essence, what happened was we're an Italian family. We're from Pennsylvania and Ohio. And when I was a baby, one year old baby, my family decided to move from Ohio to Tampa, Florida. And they didn't just move, my mom and dad didn't just move, the entire Scarpo clan decided to move. And when we moved, I'd say between my grandfather, who I write about in the book, my grandmother, and the enormous amount of cousins and aunts and uncles, I'd say maybe it was a mass exodus in 1962 of about 35 people, right? And we came to Tampa, Florida. And there were many reasons for that move. My grandfather worked in the coal mines. They were from Spangler, Pennsylvania. My dad was a truck driver, an electrician, trying to make a living in Cleveland, Ohio. But things just didn't look bright. The future didn't look bright. And in the process of all of that, when they moved down here, of course, I'm a baby. I don't know anything about Tampa. I'm just a baby. But my father and his brothers and his dad and all of the family did what they did best. They got into the bar business. They got into the restaurant business. They were all entrepreneurs. They wanted to stake their claim in Tampa. But the truth is our family didn't know anything about the history of Tampa. My family was destined for Miami. They stopped in Tampa to meet a friend and realized they liked Tampa and didn't want to go to Miami, but they had no history whatsoever. Well, Tampa Bay has a very rich history of the mob, has an enormous history going back to the 20s and 30s of the mafia. And as you mentioned earlier, you mentioned Scott, Scott Steech. He's written many books on that. And at about the time that my family came here, Seto Traficanti Jr. was the overlord. He ran the mafia. Well, the last thing on my family's mind was mafia, gangsters, mafioso, the Traficanti family. They just wanted to survive. Okay. And the story goes, as we're all growing up as cousins, we all have our own big, loud Italian family. We were our own family. We didn't have neighbors and we didn't have family that were here. We were our own clan. So in a lot of ways, we were the Italian outsiders. Tampa Bay, historically, and you mentioned Ybor City, is known for a large amount of Italian immigrants, Spanish immigrants, Cuban immigrants. So this city has been rich with immigrants and rich with Latin history because of the cigar industry Well, going back to 1900, what we didn't know and what my father could have never known when he started in the bar business and he started doing well, and my father being a resourceful Italian man trying to make some extra money, he began to set up booking operations on the side. Yes, he'd sell a pizza, he'd sell a Cuban sandwich. Here's your beer, here's your draft. But oh, by the way, this isn't cutting it. So he got into bookmaking because the dog track, the Tampa dog track, or the Greyhound track, was right across the street from my father's bar called the Springs Tap. My dad knew he wasn't making enough money. There was a, all of the Scarpa brothers were resourceful. 
And once he started making his bookmaking operation, it got big. And once it got big, the Traficante family found out about it. So my book launches at a point where people think just because you're Italian, you're in the mafia, or just because you're Italian, you might be invited into the mafia. That is the exact opposite of my book. My book is a complete and utter clash of two Italian families because my father would not accept their invitation into the mafia. That reading that you did at the start, that was like his invitation to probably to ask him to do a sit down and you need to start kicking up this gambling money. We need a piece of that action. Is that what you're telling me? Thanks for asking that. That's exactly why I chose that reading, because there came a time when my dad's bookmaking was doing so well that Santo Traficante Jr., who was an incredible leader of the mob and an extraordinarily soft-spoken man, but a very lethal man, never waded in personally to small-time issues. But what Santo did do is he would send his brother Fano or he would send his brother Henry. They were both, let's just say they were 100% made men and they were lieutenants in the army. And when I read that passage, a meeting was set for my father and he wasn't sure what was happening, who was going to be there. But as you continue on in the book, you'll find out that it was Fano and it was Henry in that banquet room, sitting my father down in a very large banquet room, completely surrounded by their gang or their soldiers, as they began to tell my father they were aware of what he was doing, that he was Italian, mm -hmm. that he should join them. And by the way, we've already run our numbers on your numbers. We know what you're doing. We know what you're making. And you need that most famous word that's always used in every mafia movie and every family, you need protection. Well, my <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> father quickly told them he didn't need any protection. That's not the way things were in Ohio and Pennsylvania and the coal mining world. We've got this. We've got this. Well, Fano and Henry did not like that answer. Yeah. So what about the police? Were the police in Tampa totally owned by the Traficante family? I write about that in the book as well. During the... 50s and 60s, based on all books that are written, not just my book and my research, the police, city councilmen, and politicians were all owned by the mafia, all owned by the Traficante family. I write about it extensively because the corruption was so deep, and many people don't know this. Everyone thinks of the mafia when they think of New York, mm -hmm. and they certainly think of it when they think of Chicago. But few people know that the southernmost outpost and the third largest world of the mafia was Tampa, Florida, because from Tampa, there was Miami. From Miami, there was Cuba. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was that my father was in so far over his head that he had no idea. He was only 23, mm -hmm. 20, I take that back, 21. I was just a baby. By that time, my young sister had been born, and she was in a crib, and he wanted to play a little tough with them. And then when Fano and Henry did the best that they could at that fateful meeting to let him know, 
you don't understand what you're getting into. Not only do we know about you, we know about your wife, we know about your young son, but we also equally know about all of you Scarpos that came from Ohio and Pennsylvania, and this isn't going to be good for you. So my dad instantly knew, and I would actually say very almost instinctively knew, there was no turning to the police. There was no turning to city council. There was no turning to anybody for help except his brothers, his brothers and sisters. And the book goes on to discuss how my dad created his own clan and went head to head with them. That's probably the thing that amazes me most because by about this time, I'm no longer one or two. We've now gotten little Tony to be about five, six or seven. Well, that's when my brain kicks in. That's when I begin to start remembering the events that happened to our family and the things that happened to my father and the pain that we all had to suffer as a result of them trying to put my father out of business and what I call the mini war that began. And I had to write about it because you can't even make it up. I just had to write that story. <laughs> Interesting. I'm always kind of curious about how this affects the extended families. I know your dad tried to protect his kids from it as much as possible, but there's still this underlying current going through their lives, your lives as a family of fear and yes. watch out for what's going on in your life if anybody comes around. So can you describe that a little bit about what that was like growing up? I can. That question was asked of me a couple of years ago. Someone asked me, what did your mother do? I mean, my mother was the protector. All Italian moms are the protector of the house. How did she protect us from that fear? My mother did the best that she could because almost like the movie, The Godfather, either the mother really intuitively knows what's going on completely, or the men in the Italian families never let the women really know at all what's going on. My feeling is my mother knew 50% of what was going on and she tried to protect us. The problem with it was she couldn't protect me because my sisters were much younger. And by this time I'm getting old enough and I'm intuitive enough and I'm smart enough. And I take trips to the bar with my dad and I begin to see these unseedy, unruly characters. I'm smart enough, even at that young age to go, that's a bad man. That's a good man, right? I get this. and then. For some reason, which baffles me to this day, because my dad still is alive, and he tells me these stories, my dad felt that at six, seven, eight years old, it was time to tell me everything. He told me my first come to Jesus conversation with my father was about the concept of kidnapping and what kidnapping looks like. And I write about that in the book. Yeah. And he said, I have to let you know that this word exists, this concept exists, and I've got to let you know that there is a constant threat of pain to our family, of hurt to our family, of kidnapping, and something could happen to me. So as a little boy, when my friends are playing soccer or they're going fishing or I don't know, maybe they're going to summer camp, I'm worrying about kidnapping. Mm. I'm worrying about my father coming home beaten, literally beaten, bloody, his eyes are black and blue. 
I'm having to worry about things like our, and I write about this in the book, our German shepherd dog, a champ was poisoned and a note was left behind sending the signal that my father, not only did he not stop his bookmaking, but he refused to join them. He refused to join that army. And my father's philosophy was always that if I join them, if I join them, I'm joining them forever. And that means that maybe my brothers, and he had eight brothers, but the brothers are now joining and everyone's joining. And by that time, my father had enough sense to know how big the Traficanti family was and how influential and just quite frankly, how dangerous they were. So the family, rather than running scared, the family did something that I think is kind of miraculous. My father's bar was not opened in Ybor City, which is the Latin Quarter, and or South Tampa, which was the, where the aristocrats and the mafiosos had their homes and their mansions and all of these things. He went to the outskirts of town. He went to North Tampa. And I referred to these people in my book because I tried to be true to the words. I referred to them as rednecks and hicks. These people that lived in the north side of town lived in the orange groves and they lived in the forest and they were farmers and they had deep southern draws. Florida is the south. So my father found his loyalty in cracker country. <laughs> these people were salt of the earth farmers that didn't have much education, but they loved my father's cooking. They loved my father being one of them. And my father adopts a southern accent. Yeah. So in the process of adopting the southern accent, my father, his brothers, and this posse. And when I say posse, they were my uncles. They were all right. Iron worker, the farmer, the guy who owned the sewage treatment company. All these people were my uncles, and that only caused more frustration with the Traficantes because they called my father a sellout. He was an embarrassment to the Italian community, but what my father was secretly doing was building this unbelievable loyalty mm -hmm. of these customers and his brothers. And when the time came for them to go at it, and they did go at it physically, my dad had his army and I didn't know it was an army. I just knew that they were uncles, right? <laughs> yeah. And as things begin to explode in Tampa, we're now moving into 68, 72, right? When the wars would break out or the hits would break out and the hits didn't always have to be with a gun or a shotgun. It could be knifing. It could be jumping. It could be someone staking you out. I write about it in the book. They put a hit out on my dad. My dad knew the hit was coming, and he had all of these people in the bar, my father's bar, and they just looked like they were old-timers sipping their whiskey, right? And when the hit came, and they came in the bar, my father made his way to the door, deadbolted the door so no one could come in, including the police, and proceeded to beat the hell out of that group of people. So he survived. <laughs> Thank goodness he survived. Anthony, I don't think you missed it. What is your father's name? His it's, first name. I'm sorry. It's Art Scarpo. Art, Art Scarpo. Scarpo. Okay, Arthur yes. Art Scarpo. Now, is your family, were they from Sicily or Southern Italy? Bari. They were from Bari, Italy. So Bari would be on the Adriatic Sea and okay. is a port city right across from Naples. So where Naples is, directly across the country, it is a port city.
So they didn't have those Sicilian roots, that mafia root. Uh, the Camorra is more like up there, I believe, the Drangheta, I can't remember, but it's not like the Sicilian mafia. That also made a difference for him, I think, on his psyche about whether he was going to give in to these guys or not. Think about it for a second. So if you look at Bari or you look at Naples and you look at Sicily, you're not too far away. So the family had to know what the mafia was or what Sicily was. And what's interesting, they were just hardworking Italians that probably had no interest, wanted nothing to do with the mob, because the end was never going to be a good end. Yeah. I tell you what, the fact that he couldn't depend on the criminal justice system. If you think of it today, in today's world, if we can't depend on the criminal justice system, then we're kind of screwed, you know, and he couldn't depend on the criminal justice system. It was like Armageddon, it was like after there is no established authority, then it's every man for himself. And the strong men then have to rise up and protect those that are around them is what I hear you saying. And that sounds like that's what he did. And that would actually go for all of Tampa. All of Tampa was on the tape. The history of Tampa, again, we referenced Scott and his tours of Ybor City. People had to comply. It didn't matter if you were Spanish or if you were Cuban or if you were Puerto Rican because the melting pot of Tampa was so glorious because the cigar industry was the world's largest cigar industry next to Cuba. And the base of that, and that's why in some references to Tampa, it's called Cigar City. These immigrants came to work in these cigar factories that pumped out, again, a great supply. And I think everyone was at the whim of the Traficantes as long as you were nice to them and you played their games, and especially you've got the gambling rackets, you've got Bolita, you've got dice, you've got poker, you've got horse racing, high life. But you also, as things began to develop deeper into the 70s, you had narcotics. Well, some Italians refused to get involved in the narcotics business. And again, my father, Nothing to do with narcotics, did not like it. His bar business began to grow. The war and the tension continued to grow between these two groups of people. But the undoing and part of the undoing of the Traficanti family is when there were enough people in Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department or the vice squad. There were enough people that said this reign of corruption has gone on so long in Tampa. There were enough good guys trying to break that. And one of them, very famous story in Tampa, was Richard Cloud. Okay, he was a detective. He was on vice. And he began to break and crack Traficanti. He began to break the narcotics. Forget about the prostitution. Forget about your gambling, your bolita. Tampa did not have the stomach for narcotics and heroin and all the things that were beginning to happen that were corrupting our city at that time. And the story goes and the news reports go, well, we all know the fact Richard Cloud was assassinated and it was a mob hit. Well, that mob hit sparked, it was became infuriating because then the FBI came to Tampa. And when the FBI came to Tampa to take over this case because one of their own good guys had the courage and the bravery to start destroying and breaking up the mafia, my dad instantly saw that as a crack. He now knew that the diversion of the FBI coming and the police force now coming down on the Traficanti clan, he knew my dad could make a break for it. 
And what I mean by making a break for it, he could go big time into his bar business. My dad was no saint. He had a gambling racket of his own. But remember, no touching of narcotics, no touching of any of that. There were things that my dad that were Italian, unsavory, but he did it, right? All of the attention was off my dad, Art. All the attention was off the Scarpo family. And the FBI literally helped bring down the Traficanti family. And that was our escape. People ask, how did you live? If we got beat and shot at and stabbed at, my dog ended up getting poisoned. They tried to do some terrible things to me, my family, when my father wasn't home. And at 13 years old, I had to defend my family with a shotgun. It was the biggest sigh of relief that we knew that they didn't care about us anymore. They cared about going to jail. They cared about the electric chair. They cared about their entire organization being destroyed. And if you read the history of Richard Cloud and his assassination in Tampa, you'll see that was the beginning of the end of the mafia in Tampa. Well, I would not heard that Richard Cloud story before. I may have to take a deeper dive into that one of these days. That sounds pretty interesting. Now, your dad, your father, he was like under the radar. Yes. Well, as far as law enforcement was concerned by this time, he continued to run a bookmaking, off-track betting, it sounds like. I don't. Did he do other sports book, to have a sports book, or just off-track no, betting? No, he, he stayed with Greyhound. They would also, Highline was a big sport oh, down here. Yeah. Highline came up from Miami, right? Huge sport. Not only sport, but the mob, and not the Tampa mob, but I believe it was the New York mob had infiltrated them so my dad knew enough to stay away from the depths of high lie because that was untouchable, right? He had his poker games, backroom poker okay. games. He had his dice games. He had the Greyhound track. He had enough to make him happy. Mm-hmm. So he just like went around, went along kind of underneath the surface while Traficante and the FBI are going at it. And the kind of linchpin on that was this Richard Cloud and narcotics. So that's interesting. See, those old guys knew what they were doing. They said, don't mess with narcotics. There's a lot of money in it, but it'll get you every time. I don't know how many of these stories I've seen where it got them. It got them. It'll take a lot of people down when they do it. See, so it's 2023. I'm 62. I live in Tampa. We live in Florida. So we know about the horrible amount of drugs that have come up through Miami over the mm-hmm. 80s and cocaine and heroin, narcotics. I was too young to know that the narcotics gig in the 70s was like a code of honor. You want to be a mobster. You want to be a gangster. You want to be in the mafia. There's like this incredible code that you can do all of these terrible things, but you can't touch drugs. Right. right? <laughs> I know. It was, it a, it was the craziest thing. But my dad never believed in the drugs. And the reason I believe my father never believed in the drugs, and not only that, his brothers and his entire clan, is some of the first level people that got involved in those drugs were children and young teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. Everything was a sense of family, and we couldn't destroy that family. And drugs would do that, of course. Right. Destroy not only other families, but end up destroying his own family. We see that right here in Kansas City. We got several younger kids of 
some of our prominent mob families that all got addicted to coca crack cocaine primarily and methamphetamine and ended up just dying an early horrible death of just ill health and that kind of thing. He say that his addiction is what killed him. So that's yes. uh, interesting. That. And Traficante and that whole family, that goes clear back to the 30s. Kansas City in the 30s had this heroin connection when Lucky Luciano and the New York mobs had this pipeline set up to Cuba to Tampa to Traficante and then up to Kansas City and Chicago and New York and all over the place. We had a guy that regularly went back and forth to Tampa to bring heroin back to Kansas City. So there's a long history of that with Is the there? Traficante family that finally brought him down in the end. It's that and Rico and wiretaps. <laughs> yes, yes. So again, the untouchable Richard Cloud, and I highly encourage you to read the story about Richard Cloud. Once someone of that prominence, and the assassination was bold. It was two men, two hired mafioso guy, went straight to his house, opened the door. He was getting ready for work. Thank God his wife had left already and just shot him right in his doorway, killed him right there. And it was so brazen. It was yeah, it so was. bloody. He was high ranking, right? He was making headway in, into bringing some of these guys to justice. And it's not a surprise that the FBI swooped in on Tampa. It's not a surprise that all of those people, including Traficante, including all of those henchmen, were all put on the stand for questioning. I look back in my book and I think to myself, Dad, you got lucky. You really got lucky because <laughs> their attention was so diverted that you were able to just finally, after eight years, evade them. And I think it's a testament. My father turns 86 in a few months. I turn 62 in just a few days. We're here because of circumstances. In many ways, we shouldn't be here. <laughs> really? Now, did he ease on out of all that, his bar business and everything, just kind of got older and sold off the bar? And, and the gambling didn't go away. We know that. Somebody yeah. else probably had come in and was working with him and ended up taking that action over. So I <laughs> he, love he, that He's still getting a little kick today, huh? I love that question because when I started to write the manuscript for this book, my father said, no, you're not doing that. I said, no, yeah. Dad, it's fading. The memory's fading. This is a crazy story, and it's real, and we all know it's real. Everything is real that happened. And, nope, you can't write that. I said, no, I'm going to write this manuscript, and I'm going to give it to you as a gift. At least that way it's in writing. Mm -hmm. And then after you read the manuscript, if you think it's worth publishing, you let me know. Story goes, I gave it to him on Father's Day. He had the manuscript. He and my stepmom read it. Two or three weeks later, they were pleased with the way that I told the story, and they gave me the okay to publish it. My father not only stayed in the bar business, my father grew to as many as two or three bars and nightclubs and package stores. My father, instead of gambling, because gambling ultimately was going to be his end, because let's not forget now, the assassination of Richard Cloud, the downfall of the mob, the yeah. downfall of the Tropicantes, all eyes were on Tampa for about four years. So my father had done so well and amassed a successful enough life, not just for himself, but for us. What my father actually ended up doing was stopped all the gambling completely. There was no need to do it. The bars themselves and the nightclubs and the package stores and the liquor stores were so successful 
that he actually ended up starting a check cashing business. So we joke about that today, but in the 70s, there were no regulations for check cashing. If you didn't have an ID, you couldn't go to a bank and cash your check. And Tampa has an enormous amount of unions and union halls. So if we bring people in from Kansas City, or we bring them in from Missouri, or we bring them from New York, and they're doing a job in Florida, and they're getting union wage, they, they physically got a check. Well, the check, no one could deposit the check in locally because the bank wouldn't allow it. My dad cashed all the union checks. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say that my dad went as legit as a human being could go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I will tell you, he's soon to be 86. At 75, he sold his last bar. Yeah. <laughs> my father is in happy, blissful retirement. Well, good. I'm happy for him and happy for you and your family that you survived that. There's a certain amount of trauma that everybody's going to carry with them, but sometimes that trauma makes you more resilient and makes you able to face other things as you go through life. So it's the trauma is a difficult thing. A childhood traumas can be tough. Yeah. Yeah. I look back and I think to myself, because again, my sisters were both alive and I would sit down and go, Debbie, Antoinette, how did we survive that? How did we <laughs> really survive that? How is it possible? And the opening paragraph of my book says this was our normal and we didn't know any other normal. So we had no choice but to survive. That was what we did. <laughs> but I lived to tell the story. Great. Well, Anthony, I really appreciate you coming on and telling all my fans out there, the listeners, the story of basically of your family. And it's an interesting story of La Mia Familia. Folks, I'll have links to it down in the show notes. If you want to get that book, I highly recommend it. It sounds like a great story and an untold story, a little known story of Southern Florida for the real mob kind of historian. This isn't just the surface. Traficante went to Apple Lake in New York, or Traficante went here, went there. Traficante once talked to Carlos Marcello or whatever. This is the real deal where the rubber meets the road, which is what I like to deal with myself, is the real deal where people really met the mob on their own grounds. Yes, yes, very real. And I'm glad it's in the past. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> Yes. All right, Anthony, thanks a lot for coming on. Folks, don't forget, I like to ride motorcycles. So if you're out there in your car, look out for motorcycles. If you have a problem with PTSD or your friend or your relative does, and they've been in the service, go to the VA website and get that hotline number. If you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, our friend, former mobster Anthony Ruggiano, has a hotline and he's just Google Anthony Ruggiano and recovery and you're going to find that hotline and Anthony can give you some help. So thanks a lot, Paul, for coming on. All right. Thank you so much. Gary. I appreciate it.